Good morning, everyone. My name is Ethan, as Joanna said. I'm the kids pastor here. This past spring, I decided that I was going to go on a hike. I was going to go on a hike in the San Gabriel Mountains. And as you know, we had kind of a relatively cool and wet winter this past year, at least for Southern California. So I knew this meant that there was going to be some snow probably on the trail that I wanted to be hiking on. So what I did to prepare for that, I went to REI and I got a pair of these. And so uh, if you've ever used these before, they're really helpful. If you've ever tried to like walk on snow that's gone through the process of being thawed during the day, refrozen at night, thawed and refrozen, you know, man, it's really difficult to get traction. You can be trying to go forward and you're just slipping and sliding all over the place. So I went, I got these guys, this little $30 product gave me just enough traction to kind of get moving in the direction that I wanted to go. Now, the kids and the youth ministries here at Seabreeze, we talk a lot about this idea of raising godly adults. And when we say godly adults, what we mean is we're talking about children who grow up to have a relationship with God through Jesus, and they take God seriously enough to do what he says, and then also to, to do what he says even in the face of opposition. And my observation as we talk about that is that most parents here pretty much agree that that is a worthy goal. The challenge for most of us isn't agreeing that godly children is a good goal. The challenge for most of us is getting traction and moving toward that goal. And, you know, life is full, life is full of goals. Life is full of responsibilities. And as we look at the various goals and responsibilities we have in our life, we see that some of them are bigger, some are smaller, some are super slippery goals and difficult to navigate. Others are not so slippery. They're a little more simple, but raising godly kids, it can seem like the Mount Everest of goals, the Mount Everest of responsibilities. Not only is it this kind of massive and weighty responsibility, but there's a million things that could go wrong, and a lot of those things that could go wrong, we know that they're entirely outside of our own control. But daunting or not, Raising godly kids is a responsibility that each parent has been assigned. And so it's important that we use the right equipment to gain traction and move forward in that area. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two essential pieces of equipment that God has given to every parent to help them get traction and move forward in raising godly kids. We're going to refer to them as the, the right boot is the first piece of equipment. And then the, the left boot, we'll call that the, the second one. But before we jump in, I feel like we need to address the elephant in the room. And that is that about two-thirds of you in the room aren't in an active season of parenting. And by active season of parenting, I mean you don't currently have kids living in your house. And so why then, knowing that, would we spend the time, why would we take the time to do a message on the topic of parenting? The reason for this is that regardless of if you're actively parenting or not, Each of us has an interest in the next generation, whether it's just a a general interest in the future of our church or the future of our society, or whether it's a specific interest, you know, maybe as as a grandparent or aunt or uncle or as a friend, none of us can afford to not invest in the next generation. And not only do we all have an interest, but we also all have a role in that next generation. If you're a parent right now, then, you know, your role is pretty obvious. It's a primary role to raise your children to walk with God. And if you're not a parent right now, then you're in a supporting role. And that one's a little less obvious and requires some real initiative and some creativity to figure out what that looks like. 
Uh, this is a picture of my family. It was taken about a week ago. We were on vacation up in the central coast. We had, we had a great time and took that picture. Uh, so my wife, Andrea, and you can see my daughters, Millie, Clara, and Margaret, and then my son, Richard. And they all have ages as well, but I have a hard enough time with the names. So <laughs> you guys can, I'm sure you can estimate their ages pretty well just from that picture. So we're, my, my wife and I, we're in the thick of it right now. We're in the thick of the parenting season of our life, and it looks like it's probably going to be that way for another 17 years, and that's okay. <laughs> so while it's our responsibility, my wife and I, to, to care for and to raise our children, we really, we really rely heavily on you for support, on our church for support. In fact, some of the most influential people in our family life right now are, are some of you who are in your 20s, who have taken the time to, when you see our kids, they run up to you, you run up to them, and you, you greet them, and you interact with them. Man, that's such a blessing for our family, and we, we are really grateful for that. And so, if you're not currently parenting, then I invite you, as we talk about parenting today, to really creatively consider how you can be a support to those who are. The verse that we're going to look at today is in the Old Testament. It's in the book of 1 Samuel. And the context for this passage is that Samuel, he's been a prophet and a judge for the nation of Israel. And he's kind of been in this dual role since the time of his youth. And he's actually been really faithful to both of those roles, but he's getting old. He's getting older, he's aging. And so the people look around, they're smart enough, they know that he's not going to be around forever. But what they decide to do is they approach him and they want him to appoint a king to replace himself. So no, instead of a prophet-judge combo, they, they want a king, just like all the other nations around them. And so what Samuel does is he consults God. He says, God, this is what people want. What should, we, what should I do? And God basically says, give them what they're asking for. Give them a king. So he does. He appoints a king. The king is established. And that leads us to chapter 12, where we're going to look today. And Samuel, in chapter 12, he's delivering this farewell speech to the nation of Israel. And in this speech, he tells them, at the end of it, he says, to serve God with their whole heart, and he tells them that God won't forsake them. And then he says this, he says, Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. So in this statement, Samuel's kind of cluing them in. He's giving them an idea of what his ongoing role is going to look like, his responsibility and his leadership toward Israel. So no longer is he going to be a judge. That role is pretty much wrapping up because the king, obviously, is going to be filling that role. But he's going to continue as a prophet. And as a prophet, what he means by that is the two things that he mentions here. He's going to pray for them, and he's going to instruct them in the good and the right way. Now, isn't it, isn't it curious that when he talks about praying for them, he doesn't just say, I will pray for you. You know, if I meet one of you after the service and you share something going on in your life, I might say to you, hey, I'll be praying for that. I will pray for you. I'm probably not going to say to you, well, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That might be a little weird. You might not know quite what to do with that. But that's what Samuel says here. He says that. And why would he say that? Why would it be a sin for him not to pray for them? And then if it is a sin, why would it be a sin against God instead of against Israel? Because Israel would be actually be the ones he'd be failing to pray for. I think that the reason that this would be a sin against God is that Samuel's leadership in Israel, it's not an arbitrary position. It's not something that he just took upon himself, that burden, 
just someone needs to do this, and so I might as well, out of a spirit of altruism or, or something like that. Instead, this is an assignment directly from God. He's been given this assignment from God. And where God gives a leadership assignment, prayer is just a part of that package. Where there's responsibility to lead, there's always responsibility to pray. And so for Samuel, failure to pray would actually be to be unfaithful with this God-given assignment. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 21 is a verse that kind of takes this a step further. It says, actually implies that it's stupid to attempt leadership without prayer. It speaks of those who are in leadership over God's people 400 years after the time of Samuel. And here's what it says, speaking of the leaders. It says, for the shepherds are stupid, which is a pretty harsh criticism right there. Why, why would it be so harsh? Why, would that, why that criticism? It says, for the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. And then what's the result of that? The result, therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. And this was true. Their flock, their people, ended up going off into exile, being totally scattered. So these leaders didn't view prayer as a vital part of their leadership. They thought that it was something that could kind of be dispensed with. And as a result, they're left looking around, seeing that their flock is scattered, they're vulnerable, and they're just kind of scratching their heads, wondering what is going on, what happened here? And the answer to that is that they did not inquire of the Lord. And so the lesson for us this morning is that it would actually be foolish to think that we could successfully accomplish a leadership assignment from God without seeking him in prayer. And so when it comes to parenting, prayer is the piece of equipment that acts as that right boot for gaining traction and raising godly kids. If God has given you children, then he has given you a leadership assignment. And if God has given you a leadership assignment, then prayer is an essential part of that package. And without it, Raising godly kids, it's going to be kind of like trying to climb uphill on ice in regular shoes. It's just going to be really difficult. And honestly, it's going to be really frustrating to get that traction that you want to get. In my experience, though, it's been one thing to affirm that prayer is essential. And then it's been another thing altogether to form the habit of regularly and thoughtfully praying for my children can't tell you how many times I've intended, I've set out, I thought I need to pray, and then just for whatever reason not followed up on that intention. Or how many times maybe I've sat down to pray, and then I just, okay, now what? What do I do from there? Uh, it's difficult to get going, get started. What do I actually pray for them? And so to help us think practically about how to get traction in this area this morning, I reached out to several fathers at Seabreeze, so I did this several weeks ago, and just asked them simply, how do you pray for your kids? What do you pray for your kids for? And so these are all men who I respect. They all have a track record of walking with God over a number of years. And their kids actually range all the way from one-year-old, so there were some new fathers in the group, all the way up to 35 years old. So some father-grandpa combos in the group as well. So as I sifted through their answers, I saw that there were five main relationships or main categories that they prayed for their kids, and that those five categories could be understood in five key relationships in a child's life. And so I want to share those categories with you this morning, but as I do, I want to be really clear. I'm not sharing this with you so that you can feel guilty about things that other people are praying for their kids that you're not praying. This is just to help help get started, help help answer the question, how can I creatively, how can I thoughtfully, intelligently pray for my children or, or even my, 
my grandchildren. For me, just getting these guys' answers back has really helped just kind of inspire my imagination about how I can pray for my own kids. So I, I hope that it does the same for you. The first category that they identified was that they prayed for their child's relationship with God, their child's relationship with God. And if you've ever had little kids, then you know that there's one thing that you don't need to teach them, and that is how to disobey. That they come with that. Um, that's, that's pretty well established in them. Sin is something that just really comes naturally even to a little kid. And that sin, though, actually has really devastating consequences. It breaks their relationship with God. And the only thing that can put that relationship back together is a relationship with Jesus based on his, his death, his sacrifice on the cross for their sins. That's the only place where they can find forgiveness and have that relationship repaired. So some of the kids of the men I interviewed, uh, they, had already, they had already sought that forgiveness through Jesus, and so they had that relationship with God. And those men expressed that what they pray for their kids is that that relationship would be strong, the relationship between them, their kids, and God. But then others, either because they had young kids or their kids just hadn't made that commitment yet, um, they said that their kids, they've not yet established that relationship with God. And so those men said that what they pray is that their kids would seek and find forgiveness through Jesus and have that relationship. One of the fathers of younger kids said this. He said simply that he prays, please have mercy on blank and help or, and save him or her. Please have mercy on my kid. Please save him or her. And this, when I read this, this actually really struck me as a simple but a pretty, pretty powerful prayer. And since it's something that I've tried to adopt with my own kids, some of that same language, it acknowledges that God is in control of whether my kids have a relationship with him. And then, of course, by implication, that means that I'm not in control of that same thing. And this adds kind of a layer of urgency and seriousness to my prayer and the way that I pray for my kids. So I've begun to pray this. I've begun to pray, God, please have mercy on Millie and Clara and Richard and Margaret, and please save them. I think if you only pray one thing for your kids or your grandkids, this is a really this is a really good thing to pray. The next category that these guys identified was that they pray for their own relationship with their kids. So I may not ultimately be in control of whether or not my kids have a relationship with God, but God nonetheless has given me a very significant role to play in that process. No other human relationship is going to have more potential for influence than a child's relationship with their parents. And there's obviously no limit of the number of things that you could pray for that relationship, but let me just suggest this as a starting point. This is just a nine-word Bible verse. A nine-word verse, it's in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. It says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And this is Paul, uh, who's a church planner, and he's actually writing this to a church that he was a part of establishing. He's writing them a letter, and he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so, Praying through this verse could look something just as simple as this. God, please help me to set an example for my son by imitating you. And help me to have enough trust with my son that he'd be drawn to follow the example that I set. So the first thing they prayed for is their, relationship, their kid's relationship with God, then their relationship with themselves. Then the next thing is for your child's relationship with his or her peer group. Which I think is really interesting. Why would these men identify their kids' peer group as one of the most critical areas for focused prayer? I think it actually shows a lot of insight here. I think they recognize several truths. The first of those is that a child's peer group 
is going to have an incredible influence on their worldview. The peer group has an incredible influence on the child's worldview. And then the second thing, as a child ages, that influence, it only increases. At the same time, parental influence is kind of on the, on the decline. So for example, I have a five-year-old, Millie. Right now, if you just look at like a pie chart of her influence, and you'd see my wife and I, we make up the biggest chunk of that pie chart. And then her, her peer group, her friends, they're kind of just a little, she's kind of a little sliver there, not a lot. She's five. When she's 15, I'm, I'm not so naive to think <laughs> that that pie chart would remain the same. I know that her peer group is going to increase in influence. And at the same time, you know, as she moves through 15, 16, 17, 18, and my influence naturally as she increases in independence, it's going to go down. So we pray that we would keep a high degree of influence for her whole life. But we realize at the same time that the influence of her peers is going to be increasing over time. And the next thing I think they realize is that society actually provides a default peer group. And if you think about it, this is pretty clearly true. Uh, school is a very natural default peer group. And then you've got sports and other activities that can kind of supplement and add to that. And then the values of that default peer group, they're really shaped primarily by the media that those kids in that peer group have access to. That's one of the major influencers for a peer group is the media that they have access to. And so what this means is that our kids' values and our kids' worldviews can easily be more influenced by the media that is in their friends' pockets and it's always in their pockets, than by the Bible. And this is obviously a huge obstacle to raising godly kids. And the more you think about it, the more you realize this is something that's worth spending time on your knees over, something worth spending time in prayer over. And so here's what my wife and I, here's what we specifically pray for our children. We pray that our children would have meaningful relationships with your children. This church is such an important part of our life for a lot of reasons, but not the least of those reasons is that we desperately want our children to have relationships and friendships that are going to draw them closer to God instead of push them or drive them away. And so, you know, we pray that even as we are working to help our kids understand the Bible and understand God's ways, that you are doing the same with your kids and they can be a real help and a real encouragement to each other over the years. Another reason why your child's peer group is so important is that out of that peer group, and probably at some point in their 20s or 30s is going to come the object of the next prayer category, which you have probably guessed is your child's spouse. Now, when I know when I was a teenager, my mom, she regularly prayed for my future spouse. She knew that a good marriage decision would have a tremendous blessing on my life and that a poor decision in that area would have some pretty negative consequences and re- would result in a lot of grief. And so, Specifically, she prayed this verse for me, Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. So my mom knew that this was true. She knew that an excellent wife is hard to find, and so she prayed that I would find one. And at the same time, she prayed for the woman who would one day become my wife. Now, I'm so glad that she did. You know, now looking back, I'm so glad knowing that my mom was doing this and that God answered that prayer. But if an excellent wife is a hard thing to find, then just looking around, it would seem to be at least equally as true that it's difficult to find a godly husband. And as I look out on the landscape of our society, I see a real deficit in the amount of godly men, godly young men that are being produced. 
And so as a father of three daughters, you can imagine that, that that's something that actually weighs pretty heavy on my heart. And so just like my wife and I pray for godly friends for our kids, we pray for three godly husbands and for an excellent wife. The final category is your child's relationship with the world. There's certainly plenty of legitimately scary things in the world from the perspective of a parent. You just look at the world, you look at your child, and you think about them mixing together. There's a lot of scary things in that combo. Last week, I was on vacation with my family. We were staying just at this quiet little farm on the central coast. Uh, I think that's where the picture was from that I showed earlier. While we were there, there's a lot to do in that area of the state. We did none of it. We just stayed at this little farmhouse that we were on. We hung out. We let our kids get dirty. My boy Richard just loved picking up dirt and putting it in a shirt. <laughs> it was great. They just got skin knees and got to really run free, which is, is rare. You know, you guys probably have, kiddie, have city kids or work city kids. So it was, like, it was like being on vacation in the Garden of Eden out there. And toward the end of the week, I remember thinking, man, I wish that we could just stay here. <laughs> I wish we could just raise our kids in a context like this that is safe and let them grow up away from all the evil in the world. And if, if it was up to me, I think I would just pray that, my, that God would keep my kids in a little bubble like that. Not for a long time, just like 30, 40 years, but just like <laughs> in a little bubble like that that's nice and safe. But thankfully, Jesus set a better example here than, than I would set. Um, listen, this is what he prayed for his disciples and their relationship with the world. He said this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So Jesus had a mission for his disciples. He wanted them to tell the world about himself after he had gone. And so for this reason, it was necessary that they actually be in the world. And so he specifically prays, says, I'm not praying that you be taken out of the world. They needed to be in the world so that they could actually do what he wanted them to do. And so instead he prayed for protection as they carried out that mission. This is the attitude that I'm trying to adopt, adopt with my kids. And to be honest, it's, it's a struggle to pray that way or to think that way or to want that for my kids. Like every parent, I want my kids to be safe, as I'm sure you do. But even more than that, I want my kids to learn to join my wife and I in the mission of telling the world about Jesus. And that mission requires that we charge into the world rather than just retreat from it. So I want to recognize this is a delicate issue and something that each family really needs to figure out what that looks like. But I'm learning to pray. I'm learning to pray, don't take them out of the world, but give them wisdom and give them protection from evil as we teach them how to engage the world. So that's the right boot. The right boot for gaining traction is ra in raising godly children is prayer. And then the left boot is God's word. So going back to our Samuel package, passage, we can see that he's speaking of his commitment to Israel, and he says these two things. One, I'm going to pray for you. We just talked about that. And then two, I'll instruct you in the good and the right way. Now the word way here, it indicates that he's talking about some kind of direction or path. And this begs the question, how exactly does Samuel know which path is good, which way is right? How does he have that knowledge? And the answer is that God's word actually reveals the good path, the good way. Samuel is simply in a position of relaying and explaining God's words. As I mentioned earlier, I really enjoy hiking. 
I used to live in the Central Valley, and I moved down here 14 years ago. And at the time, I had no idea that there were so many beautiful mountains just surrounding this whole area. And so over the years, I've been able to kind of explore some of those trails and get to know them a little bit. And as I've done that, one thing that I've learned, observed, is that there's kind of these unwritten rules of trail etiquette out there. I don't know if you knew that these exist, but they seem to be true as I go and experience them. One of those is that it's common and it's courteous to exchange trail information when you pass someone. So you pass someone and maybe you know something about how far it is to a place or what the destination is like or what the trail conditions are. I talked to a guy after the second service and he said he always meets people who are coming uphill while he's going downhill and the uphill person's always asking, how much farther? (laughs) So that kind, of, that kind of thing, it's just, it's just polite. And so if, I've, if I'm going somewhere, especially that I've never been before, I find this to be really helpful. Uh, the other day, or not the other day, recently though, I, I was going somewhere I'd never been before, and I met this guy, and he told him, I told him where I was wanting to get, and he said, oh yeah, you probably don't want to go there unless you have an ice axe. And this was one of the rare days where I didn't have my ice axe with me. <laughs> I'm sure you carry it everywhere you go but I had forgotten mine at home that day. So I didn't have an ice axe, and so I said, well, what else is up there? He said, if you turn at this such and such place, there's an alternate destination. Man, it's it's just as good as the place you're trying to get to. You'll really enjoy it. So I followed his advice. I did what he said. I had a great time, and he basically salvaged my day. One thing that I've noticed, though, about this ritual is that it's only helpful if one of the parties involved has actually been on the trail before. There have been times when I've crossed paths with people and we have this kind of mutual ignorance in common. Neither of us has been there before. And we just pause and we sort of speculate about what might be ahead, how far and whatnot. There's even this one time in the Palm Desert when I was hiking and I, I ran across this couple. They asked me for directions, how to get to a place. And I had never actually been there before, but I was pretty sure I knew how to get there. And so I told them, oh yeah, go this way, this way. Half an hour later, after we've parted ways, I realize, oh man, I sent them in totally the wrong direction. <laughs> I really hope I don't see them again today. <laughs> um, so I actually felt really bad about that. But this is similar to how it is when it comes to helping our children learn the good and the right way. To instruct our children in God's words, we need the trail experience of reading God's word and applying it to our lives. And I think we tend to think that instruction in God's word, instruction in the good and the right way has a lot to do or more to do with our ability to present content or to to teach. In reality, it has a lot more to do with action and with application than it does with eloquence. The reason that the guy who I met on the trail was able to give me helpful instruction wasn't that he was ultra articulate. It definitely helped that he could string an intelligible sentence together, but that wasn't really what qualified him to give helpful instruction. As far as I know, he wasn't some sort of forest guru, whatever that might be, and he was just a dude. He was just a guy hiking on a trail that day. So what was it that qualified this random guy to be helpful to me? It was that he had actually been there. He had done it. He had probably taken a wrong turn, realized he didn't have his ice axe as well, He was able to speak out of experience. And so if you're reading God's word and you're applying it to your life, then you have the map and you have the trail experience. 
and you are qualified to instruct your children in the good and right way. And when you do this, even those wrong turns that you make can still be a real benefit to your children. But it requires consistent time in God's word. There was another time when I was going on a hike and I had a map with me, but it was in, it was in this book, 101 Hikes in Southern California. And so I got to my trailhead and I pulled out the book. I just realized, man, my backpack is already a little heavy. It's kind of weighted down. And so I was thinking, should I bring the book or should I just leave it behind? So I thought about it. What I concluded, to, what I decided to do was just kind of in the parking lot there, I said I was going to study the map. Apparently, I thought I would use the photographic memory that I do not have to take mental snapshots of this book. So I did that. I studied it. I got my snapshots. And then a few miles out, I'm sure you can guess what happened. I needed to make a decision. I needed to consult the math. And oh man, my mental snapshots weren't cutting it in that moment. So I had no idea which way to go. I had to just take a guess. I had to take my best guess. I just distinctly remember thinking, what in the world were you thinking? (laughs) Why didn't you bring the book? And we've all done the same thing with God's word. We've come to church and heard God's word on a Sunday, but then flattered ourselves that that's going to be enough to get us through that week's journey. Or maybe we look at our week, we see that we've got a lot going on. We see that just like my backpack was kind of full and heavy, that our schedule's already packed and loaded down, and we conclude, you know, we just don't have time. And in some sense, we're right. We're right to conclude that reading the Bible requires our time, because it does. Just like that book actually had volume and mass to it, reading the Bible actually requires time. But if we don't make room for it on a daily basis, then we're going to find that not only do we struggle to navigate our own way, but we struggle to act as reliable guides (coughs) to our children as well. Thankfully, though, it doesn't take years and years of spending time daily reading God's Word before you can begin instructing your children in God's Word. Just like you can climb a mountain in the morning and then on your way down, you can offer helpful instruction to someone on their way up. In the same way, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, you can spend time in God's word. In the afternoon, you can apply what you read. In the evening, you've got some instruction for your children. It's something that can be started pretty quickly. It's simple, but often the hardest part is is just that, getting started. There have been times when, um, I'm, you know, I've, I've had a hard time getting started, or maybe for me, just the, the habit has become stale or mechanical. Maybe you've been in a position like that before, um, or just getting a jump start is kind of the, the, the challenge. And I expect that not only is that something that's happened to me in the past, I expect I'm going to run across that in the future as well. And when I've been stuck in those times in the past, the most helpful thing for me for getting unstuck has been hearing what other people are doing to spend time in God's words. What does that actually look like for them? And so for that reason, I asked that same group of fathers a second question. I asked, what are you doing to spend time in God's word? And here's what I learned. I learned that each guy had a consistent time, mostly that was in the morning, and mostly that was with coffee as well. So I thought that was great. I really appreciate that they included the coffee specifically. So it was consistent time in the morning with coffee, And then a consistent place, consistent place where they would spend time with God's word. On average, it took them about 15 to 30 minutes a day. But then when it came to what they actually did with that 15 to 30 minutes, there was a pretty significant amount of variety in their approaches. But then within those approaches, there were three 
common denominators. And so I just want to share those common denominators with you today because I think they're really helpful. The first thing that they had in common was that they spent time reading. Three guys said that what they did is they just, they had an app and the app had a, a daily verse or a daily passage or a plan. And so they would open up that app, they would go, they knew exactly where to go, and they would read what, whatever was in the Bible from that app for that day. That was kind of their launching out point. I thought that was really a great idea. Two other guys observed that the book of Proverbs has 31 chapters in it. And so what that means that they said is that there's one for each day of the month. And so what they, what they do is they read one chapter that corresponds with the day of the month. So for example, today is the 8th, so they would read Proverbs chapter 8. I thought that was a great idea, especially when it comes to application, because the book of Proverbs is so practical. It's one of the easiest books in the Bible to read it in the morning and do it in the afternoon. So I thought that was a great idea. Another said that as a newer Christian, he had formed the habit of reading the same books of the Bible, just kind of over and over to help him really get a good grasp of the message and what was going on. I thought that was a pretty good idea as well. Personally, I think the book of John is a great place to start for that. It just talks about Jesus's life in pretty plain language. And, uh, you know, we actually just finished a message series where we went through the first four books of John. So that's a great starting point. So they read the word. Then the second thing that they had in common is that they all had a method of reflecting on what they read. Several did that just by writing down maybe one or two things that stood out from what they had read. I didn't get the sense that they were writing novels, that they were or that they're making daily diary entries. This is just kind of one or two little points about, I read this in the Bible, and this is what stood out to me. This is something I learned about God. This is something I learned that that was helpful. Uh, Others reflected by memorizing verses that really stood out to them, which, and then they would review them throughout the day. Specifically, a couple guys mentioned an app called Scripture Typer, where they can put in some scriptures into their phone that they want to memorize, And then whether it's right after their time in the morning with God or whether it's later on in the day, maybe waiting in line or something like that, they just use that app to help them reflect on the things that they had previously read. Another guy, he did this by talking with his wife about the things that each of them had read that morning. They would go on a walk before work and just talk about what did you learn? What stood out? How do you want to apply that? So if you're an external processor, that might be a good one, a good one to try out at some point. But then the final thing that these guys all had in common is that the goal of their reflection was application. It wasn't just reflection and reading for reading and reflection's sake. The goal of their reading and reflection was application. This is where, this is the difference between just studying the map and actually hitting the trail. This is also what determines if you and your family are going to experience the blessing of God's word. Jesus said this in John 15, 17. He said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know them, you'll be blessed if you do them. The blessing of God's word, it isn't for the readers. It isn't for the reflectors. The blessing of God's word is for the doers. So read, reflect, apply. When all three of these are firing in your life on a daily basis, then just out of the overflow of what God is teaching you, you will be able to teach your children. There are obviously more reasons than for the sake of our kids to read the Bible and to pray on a daily basis. But without parents and without a community of adults that are committed to those two things, the future kind of looks bleak for the next generation. But I think there's great hope. I think there's a lot of hope 
for the next generation, the generation that's coming up right now. Because God has not placed the tools for raising godly children up here on the top shelf where only the spiritually elite can access them. And there really, there, there is no spiritual elite when it comes to raising godly kids. There are just parents and there's just the church. And God has put the tools right where they're accessible to everyone. And so I encourage you to use the tools and to use them every day and to be humble enough to ask others how to use them more skillfully. And then just watch and see what God does over time in your family, in our church, in our society. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you include us in this. Um, Your word says that children are a tremendous blessing and our life verifies that 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 is true. Children are a blessing, God, and you you include us in the process of, of teaching them. And God, I pray that you would give us real wisdom and add to our wisdom, um, creativity, and example as we do that. God, I pray for those who have kids living under their roof right now, that you would help them to develop the habits that are really required um, for helping their children grasp you and who you are. And, um, and God, I pray for those who don't have children living under their roof right now, that you'd help them to have creativity and initiative about how they can help and support those who are in that position. God, we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.